Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Haggai. And if you're like most people in the room, you're like, what? Haggai is the second smallest book in the Bible. It hides at the end of the Old Testament. And it's between the two Z books, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's the end of the Old Testament. It'll take some of you a while to find it. That's okay, because it's going to take me forever to get there. Um, Haggai is a book that I am excited to study, because most of the people in this room haven't studied it. And I actually feel like going to Haggai, the message that I'm preaching this morning, it's actually part of kind of a three-week-in-a-row emphasis that I've been pushing. One of them was at the end of Ephesians. In the end of Ephesians, if you were here, uh, in Revelation 2, Christ writes a letter to the church. He says, you've lost your first love. And he brings them to a crossroads. What are you going to do about it? You need to remember. You need to repent. You need to change. He brings them to a decision point. At Easter last week, same thing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ creates a decision point. You can reject or you can accept, but, but as, even as Cal preached, he's like, but the insane decision would be to accept it, but then not change. It, again, two weeks in a row, pushing us to change. Today's text is going to do the same thing. It's going to um, focus on the presence of the Lord. Is that a priority for us? And hopefully this week, again, our hearts will be moved. The Spirit will move in this place to push us to change. Now, before I jump into the text, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a recap from last weekend, some stuff I want to communicate to you. And I've got to put it in a little bit of context. Easter of 2022 versus Easter of 2020. Easter of 2020, um, I took attendance in the room. It was one. Every church in the Tri-Cities was closed. It was the beginning of um, a pandemic and a season of isolation. And uh, I walked through this room by myself on Easter morning, 2020, uh, heartbroken. So contrast that with last week. Across our two campuses and the four services, there were 3,600 people in attendance here. Fremont. Fremont was nuts. They had another 1,200 people. So I know it was happening in our campus plants um, as well. But more importantly, what we saw last week, if, if you were here, did any of you sense the Spirit of the Lord moving? It's a sweet thing, isn't it? We did 126 baptisms. We've never seen a response like that. And... Um, Listening to the baptisms as I was doing the baptism, one of my takeaways from the weekend, I don't think I've ever, we've done a lot of baptisms here, never that many in a weekend, but the thing that stuck out to me last week that I was just praising the Lord for this week, so many people came into the tank and said, I'm coming to be baptized because I've made the decision to follow the Lord today. It's a new decision, new conversions. I'm just praising the Lord for that. And then many of you are aware we took an offering um, last week. Everything that came in this week is designated to go to a, a group called Josiah Venture, an organization that is helping with the relief of Ukrainian Christians and now Ukrainian refugees throughout Poland and other countries in Eastern Europe. Last week, just so you know, and the check will go out on Wednesday, we sent or we raised $320,000 for Ukraine. And um, thank you. Um, always surprised 
by the generosity of this congregation. So it, it was really fun. Typically, um, Jody Flickema would work out the details. Um, I was the one that called Josiah Venture and told him what we raised. I just took that moment from her. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a fun conversation. But this morning, as we talk about the presence of the Lord, I've, I've got to give you a little background to get you up to speed on what's going on in Haggai. And, and if you think in the Old Testament about the presence of the Lord, in the garden, Adam and Eve were told, walked with God. His presence was there. They could interact. They could ask questions. It was a very close relationship. But when sin breaks that relationship, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. The sad part of that is not that they lost paradise. What made paradise paradise was the presence of the Lord. And now there's division because of sin. As it relates to God's presence with his people, we can pick up the story in the book of Exodus. When uh, Israel leaves Egypt, they are freed from captivity. They begin to go into the wilderness. We read in Exodus 13, 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of, of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, get this, did not depart from before the people. So as the people wander through the wilderness, they're following a physical manifestation of the presence of the Lord. He was with his people. The problem is the people continued to grumble and complain. And we read in Exodus 33, verse 3, God is talking to Moses. God has made some promises all the way back to Abram and Isaac and the forefathers of the nation of Israel, that he will give them a land, he will give them an inheritance. But because of the people's rebellion, in Exodus 33, verse 3, God says to Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. God's going to keep his word to the patriarchs. But then he says, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. To, to lose God's presence, to have God remove his presence from his people, from a church, from your family, from your life, it's a disastrous word. Moses will argue with God. He will plead with God, don't forsake your people. And he says this in Exodus 33, verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with us, don't bring us up from here. We don't want the land, we want you. For how shall it be known that we have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So what Moses is arguing, he goes, without your presence, we have nothing. It's the thing that we desire more than anything. And, and God goes with the people, they enter the land of Canaan, and we read in Exodus 40, that while they were going through the wilderness and when they settled in Canaan, they, they established the tabernacle. It was a church that was portable. They could set it up, take it down wherever they were in the wilderness or when they got to Canaan. And the presence of the Lord resided in the ta tabernacle, his physical presence. We read in Exodus 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Hundreds of years later, now Israel is in the land. They have possession of the promised land. David is fought to protect its borders. And his son Solomon builds a permanent temple. Not, not a traveling tabernacle, but a permanent temple. And he dedicates it to the Lord. David wanted to build this temple for the Lord. And God said, no. You've been a man of war. You've been a man of bloodshed. You can't build it because you desire to build it. Go ahead and gather the materials. Your son Solomon is going to be able to complete the temple. So David dies. Solomon takes the throne. He builds the temple and he's dedicating it. We read about it in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 1. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, his dedication for the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Now, the temple was significant in the religious life of Israel. It was the place where the people gathered. The people of God gathered to praise the Lord. They brought sacrifices. Christ had not yet been sacrificed on the cross, so there were annual sacrifices that were there to cover their sin. That happened at the temple. God resided in the temple. It had huge religious significance. Now, as I'm going through this, some doctrine, if I can just stop for a minute. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is spirit. That's clearly taught in Scripture. Even when Solomon was dedicating the temple, he said this in 1 Kings 8.27. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. David, his father in Psalm 139 goes, where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. Wherever I go, your hand will lead me. In the New Testament, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 18, where two or, you are, two or three of you are gathered in my name, I will be among you. In Ephesians 2 and in 1 Peter 1, uh, the church is referred to as a living temple, that God resides in his temple and with his temple. Revelation 2, three weeks ago, we looked and Jesus walks among his churches. In Psalm 22, 3, it says, of God, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. What that means is when the people of God gather to worship and they raise their voice singing praises to the Lord, he inhabits the praise of his people. And we're promised that in Revelation 21, when Jesus comes back and declares all things new and the keys to the universe are given to him, it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You know what makes heaven heaven? The presence of the Lord. People ask me goofy questions about heaven all the time. A month ago, a young guy in the lobby goes, Hey, I, need, I got a quick question for you. Are there vegetables in heaven? And I'm like, yes, and you will like them. Like, I, I don't know how to answer the questions. Will there be golf in heaven? Obviously. Will there be pets in heaven? For sure. Will your pet now, Fluffy, be there? Not so sure. Okay. A lot of things that I'm not really clear about in heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of the Lord. It's the thing to be most desired. Back to the story. 
After Solomon builds the temple, immediately after his death, Israel splits into two nations. There's a civil war, it becomes a divided kingdom. They fall into disobedience, idolatry, worshiping foreign gods, and because God loves them, he pursues them, and he sends prophet after prophet to call them to repentance. The northern kingdom will not repent, and in 722 BC, it is overthrown by Assyria. Southern kingdom also falling into rebellion and idolatry and forsaking the presence of the Lord. And prophet after prophet, repent, 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 and repent, and they do not. So in 586 BC, Babylonians' capture of the southern kingdom Judah is complete, Jerusalem is destroyed, and the temple is leveled in 586 BC. Right before the temple's leveled, Ezekiel, the last prophet to a nation that's going to go into exile, into captivity, he records in Ezekiel 10 that the presence of the Lord departs from the temple. It's gone. And the people go into exile in 586 BC. Babylon is their captor. It's the world power of the day. But if you fast forward to 540 or 539 BC, Babylon now falls. They're crushed by the Medes and the Persians. A king by the name of Cyrus comes to power. And this is really kind of where the story gets cool. If you, if you ever had a doubt that God is sovereign, if you ever had a doubt that God can move the hearts of nations and kings, read what he says. Are you guys ready for Haggai yet? I'm not. We got to go to Ezra first. I'll get there in a bit, okay? A little bit more of the story from Ezra. Look at what it says in Ezra 1. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is 538 B.C., the word of the Lord by the mouth, or I'm sorry, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Why did Cyrus say what he said? Because God stirred his heart. Why did God stir his heart? Because he was going to be faithful to the promise that he made to the prophet Jeremiah. God's in control of this thing. And then in verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And then he goes on and says, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then it says, he rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Let me summarize that for you. God took a foreign king and said, go rebuild my house. He let the exiles go back home. Not only did he let them go back home, he said, before you go, make sure you take a free will offering from all of your neighbors. He didn't just let them go rebuild it, he funded it. And they return, and in Exodus 2, there's a record of who went back. And in Exodus 3, they lay the foundations for the temple. The exiles returning to rebuild it, 538 B.C., and at the end of chapter 3, the foundation is complete. They dedicate the foundation to the Lord. And we read this. He says in Ezra 3.11, and, the and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. 
they were rejoicing in the steadfast love of the Lord towards his people. 538 B.C. And then construction stops. The work ends. The construction site is empty. The foundations lay bare. For 18 years, the people that came back from exile with the task of rebuilding the temple, that's why they went back. They don't rebuild it. And again, the temple's significance. It's where the presence of the Lord dwelt. So the question has returned to the book of Haggai. Are you guys found it yet? Okay, I'm even there now. Good news, all right? So as we jump into the book of Haggai, this is the background. Because God loves them, because he pursues them, he's going to shake them. And he raises up a prophet by the name of Haggai. And I think what he says to the people has real relevance to us today. How am I doing with my notes? Am I doing well with us? Okay, if you're keeping notes, we've arrived, okay? Here's the first part. What keeps us from seeking the Lord's presence? I could say what keeps them. I don't really care about them. They lived 2,500 years ago. Let's apply this to us in this room. What is keeping us from seeking the Lord's presence? To alleviate stress of those that you're listening, I'll give you the big idea now. It's simple. God desires our desires. God desires our desires. What keeps us from seeking the presence of the Lord? Here's the first one, adversity. Now, now typically, I try to pull all of my points directly from the text that we are studying. This point, I actually got to jump back to Ezra. Remember, I told you that construction stopped, the foundations laid bare. That's happened at the end of chapter 3. Why did it stop? The first thing we read, Ezra 4.1, says this. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, okay, that's, I don't have to take you any farther. They started building the foundations. They laid the foundations, and guess what came up? Adversaries, adversity. Whenever you are doing the work of the Lord, you can expect adversity. If you're taking turf... For the kingdom of God, for the gospel, that's going to be contested land. It's always the case. If you were here last week, after the baptisms, I, I closed each of the services in prayer. Do you know what I always pray for? Protection. For the people that were just baptized. Because for some, they've just given their life to Christ. For others, they're making a public profession for the first time. They are making steps taking turf for the gospel, and I know what follows. Adversity. We've been around long enough as a church that when we go into an Easter weekend, the week before, the week after, often adversity. It's just the pattern, the rhythm. We're in a battle. There's a spiritual war coming on, and if you're going to do the work that God has called you to do, don't be surprised by adversity. Here's the second thing. Now we're back into Haggai, Haggai 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of somebody, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Here's all I want to point out in that verse. Sixth month, first day. Throughout the book of Haggai, God will give four oracles. He'll speak four times. Each of the times is specifically dated. And what's cool about this, we know the exact date. 
August 29th, 520 BC. That's when Haggai gave this word. The last oracle recorded in this book will be in December, four months. It's all this book covers. But after 18 years, God is now again speaking through his prophet. And look what he says in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Haggai is 38 verses in its two chapters, 14 times God is referred to as the Lord of hosts. He controls the fortunes of his people. He raises up kings and kingdoms. He controls the surrounding nations. He directs nature. He gives the divine word through his prophet. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Okay, I want you to see something in the text. These people. I'd prefer he called them my people. He called them these people. Kristen and I raising our kids, we had six kids. There were times I would come home from work and the kids were just spinning out of control. And I would say, Kristen, these children are driving me crazy. Or I would say, get your kids under control. And she would remind you, they're your kids too. I'm like, not right now. You know, that's kind of what God has just indicated. There is a frustration. There is a separation between him and his people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, adversity. Here's the second thing. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 18 years. Why aren't you building? It's not yet time. Not yet. We'll get to it. Procrastination, maybe. Indifference, maybe. Laziness, maybe. I don't know. Just not time yet. We'll get to it. We'll get around to it. The presence of the Lord was not a priority. Where might God be speaking to you today as it relates to your passions and priorities? Where if you were honest with yourself, the Lord is not your primary pursuit because other things have stolen your passions. Where, where might he speak to your conscience, bring things to your mind in your life that if you were being honest, you'd be saying the same thing. Well, I'll get there, but it's not yet time. I'll give that up, but not yet. I'm willing to change, but not now. Priorities. God wants to be our driving priority. This week, we finished up Easter. It had been a long weekend with Good Friday and Easter. By the time we got to Sunday afternoon, I was exhausted. Our staff had Monday and Tuesday off, but I didn't take Monday and Tuesday off. Why? Because I'm a diligent pastor. <laughs> and I had to get ready to preach Haggai. So Monday morning, 6.30, after a whole Easter weekend, I'm sitting at my kitchen table, working on the background to Haggai. Working through the book, driven to get that thing done by Tuesday. Do you know why? Because I'm passionate. <laughs> or maybe I read a weather report and it was snowing on Monday and Tuesday, but it was supposed to be nice on Thursday and Friday. And I'm thinking, if I can get this done now, I could take Thursday off and then maybe I could go golfing. We got to examine our priorities, why we do the things that we do in the order that we do, because sometimes we can even fool ourselves. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Priorities. Here's a third thing that I see in the text. Verse 3. 
Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Get this in verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? That's a pretty good burn from God. I mean, one of the things that I love about the book of Haggai, God speaks really direct. Like, are you missing what he's trying to communicate there? He's saying, listen, you're taking care of yourself. I'm further down the chain. It's a priority problem, but would you value more than me? Paneled houses, comfort. Hey, as long as you're comfortable, you believe that you're satisfied. That word dwell, to, to, to sit down, to settle in. And this idea that you dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins. I'm not only worried that they were comfortable in their residence, in their home. I think God's pointing at something bigger. Maybe they've gotten comfortable in their sin. If the temple, one of the purposes of the temple was to give sacrifice for sin and the temple wasn't there, have the people become comfortable with the lifestyle where God is not on the throne? Here's another thing I see. You're going to jump down to 9b if you're following with me. The fourth thing is busyness. God says, because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Busies himself. It actually literally means they're running after other things. Again, speaking to this room, what are you running after? What are the things that you are pursuing that is squeezing out your desire for the presence of the Lord? Driving back from Chicago yesterday morning, Kristen and I are in the car and we're trying to coordinate schedules for the month of May. We've got four retreats that are at our house. We've got people in and out of town. We've got weddings. And, and as we're going through the month of May, Kristen just looks at me and goes, May's nuts. Yeah, that can be a problem. It's good to be busy. It's good to be involved in kingdom work. But the truth is, you can be busy with a lot of good things and miss the most important thing. And then a fifth thing. Adversity, priorities, comfort, busyness. Here's a fifth, ignorance. You'll see this through the rest of the text. The people are devoted to themselves. They are their highest priority. And, and God's going to address a question. Why? Are you choosing to live your life in a way that leaves you completely unsatisfied? Why are you making the foolish or the ignorant choice? Because when we choose not to make God our primary pursuit, there's always a cost. Two costs. Here's the first one. We are unsatisfied. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, one of my jobs as the preacher is to take what God says and illustrate it in a way that you can understand. So what he's trying to say here is, does it ever feel like you're rowing against the current? Does it ever feel like you're sailing into the wind? Does it ever feel like you're pedaling uphill? Here's the problem. Those are lame illustrations compared to the forge God just gave you in the text. He's giving such clear indication of what he's trying to communicate. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. Here's what he's saying. When you make your priority, your work, it'll never satisfy. So many people evaluating, am I satisfied with my job? Am I satisfied in what I do? Am I satisfied with my career? Okay, your job was never meant to satisfy you. 
The Lord is meant to satisfy you. And when we work in our job, whatever our job is, if we do it unto the Lord, we can find satisfaction because we're looking through the activity to the God who is supreme. It says this, Colossians 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily. Get this, whatever you do. What you do isn't the important thing. Work hard as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So many of us make our identity, our activity, and our job becomes our significance. And the problem with that is, what's going to sustain you when the job gets hard, when it gets difficult, when it's not fun? When the return isn't what you want it to be. When the markets and many things that are often out of our control all of a sudden swing against you. What happens to your significance, your identity? If it's resting in temporal things, it's always at risk. Here's the second thing. Not just that you can't find, you won't be satisfied if your identity is your activity. He comes on, he says, you eat but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. It's not just when we set our significance on our labor, it's when we set our significance on the fruit of our labor. Believing that more will satisfy you is a fallacy that men chase all the time. If I could just make a little more so that I could have a little bit bigger house or a little nicer car or a little this or a little this or more vacations, then I'll be happy. It's not only work that wasn't meant to satisfy, the fruit of work is not meant to satisfy. That's God's job. He says, you clothe yourselves and no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. Struggling to follow that analogy? He's saying, listen, you're working, you're pursuing, you're pursuing, but you're never getting the thing that you're looking for. You're never satisfied. Question for you. Do you believe that God will withhold the physical to get a hold of the spiritual? That God will sometimes withhold physical blessing because he's trying to get your attention. Would you believe that? I believe that's true. Compare what he just said to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 30. Oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So the question that I would have is, if you agree that sometimes God will withhold the physical to get hold of the spiritual... Is it possible that God will provide the physical when he has hold of the spiritual? Is that equally true? For sure. That's what Jesus just said. Make your pursuit of my presence your primary pursuit and watch how God will respond to that. So the first cost is we are unsatisfied. The second one is honestly a little bit more intimidating. God opposes. Look at verse 9. God opposes. You looked for much and behold it came to little and when you brought it home I blew it away. Is that clear enough? I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain and the new wine, the oil and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. 
So, so the text is written. We know when God's saying this, August 29th, 520 BC. And because of what I just read and because of what historians have tried to prove, their argument is Israel's harvest season is just about complete by the end of August. They've had a bad harvest and God is saying, hey, listen up. I'm trying to get your attention. You can farm and work as hard as you want, but at the end of the day, I'm the one that's in control of the harvest because I control the weather. And I'm withholding, I'm opposing you because you've refused to restore my house. That's what he's saying in the text. Whether that's completely accurate or not, I tried to go back and look in the Falmer's Almanac. It just didn't go back that far. But I think the point is important for us not to miss today. God's saying, listen, when I'm not your primary pursuit, not only do you find yourself left unsatisfied, but you're, you're opposed. Well, well David, can you, can you cross-reference that anywhere else? Yeah, I think I can. James 4, verse 3. James writes, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is saying, listen, the fact that you ask and God doesn't answer is because your priorities are wrong. It's what you're pursuing, where your passion is. And then he goes on and says in verse 6, Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Walt Kaiser, a theologian, said it this way, No one cheats God without cheating himself at the same time. So the cost is we are unsatisfied, God, God opposes. What's the remedy? How do we, how do we fix this? If, if, if we're being honest with ourselves and we're saying, God, you're not my primary pursuit. You're not the thing. It's not your presence that I seek over everything else. What's the remedy? Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Take a moment. Check your heart. <laughs> Am I studying on Monday and Tuesday because that's my primary passion? Or is my primary passion, great weather and golf later in the week. I got to check my motives. I have to check my heart. Quit running after stupid that won't satisfy. Quit making yourself your own priority. You make a really lousy king. You don't satisfy. Now, it's interesting in this text, one of the things that I love, the Lord is so direct in his communication with the people, are you willing to let the Lord speak this directly to you? Are you letting, willing to let the word do what the word does, start to expose your heart and your priorities? This past week, it's been interesting. I've been dealing with two different couples. One is staying with us. They're up. They're in the process of transitioning from the Chicago suburbs up into um, the Tri-Cities area. I'm dealing with another couple uh, from New Jersey that are also looking to move into this area. They both want to move into this area. What's the problem with moving into this area right now? Does anybody know? <laughs> where, where are you going to find a house? Like it's, it's bidding wars all over the place. It's a disaster, right? And so two different couples, two different situations, both found a house last week. Look at it as provision from the Lord. Both are saying, you know what? We've been praying about this. We want to make sure that it's God's will. We don't want to step a step ahead of where God's calling us to do. God being the priority and all of a sudden, like the question that I would have is if God is not your primary focus or your primary pursuit, how in the world do you have confidence in your decision-making process? 
Like, like, like people always come to me as a pastor. It's like, hey, pastor, I got this really big decision. And I've been wondering about this. And I've got a couple different things. And I've got to decide what I'm going to do. Great. I'm glad you're coming to get godly counsel. And you're talking to me or one of our other pastors. Guess what we're going to tell you? Have you sought the Lord in this? Have you sought what his will is for you? Because if you want confidence in your decisions, if you want to believe that the presence of the Lord is with you, show it. How, how do you desire? Consider your ways. And then the second thing I see in the text, consider your ways in verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You've got to do something about it. If God pricks your conscience and says, listen, there's some changes that I needed to make in my life because the presence of the Lord has not been my primary pursuit, go. Make a change. And please hear me. God did not need the people to build him a house so that he had a place to reside. God wasn't trying to get something from the people. He was actually trying to give them something. He's saying that I might be glorified. That word glorified in the Greek, it means that I might be weighty. That I might be the weighty thing in your life. The thing that never moves. The constant that you always pursue. And he's not doing it for himself. He could have snapped his fingers and made a temple as great as Solomon's. He didn't need the people. He was calling them to do this for the people. Didn't need their money. He's doing okay. Didn't need their work. He can speak it into existence. He's saying, listen, I don't want you to be an unsatisfied people. Go. You're at a crossroads. Make a choice. We're going to leave it there. We can look at how the people responded to the word of the Lord. We'll look at that next week, okay? In this moment in our context, it really doesn't matter how they responded. The question is, how will we respond? The questions that I would ask you. What excuses need to stop right now, this morning? What excuses have you been making about your priorities that need to stop? What is God calling you to do that shouldn't wait another day? Maybe it's forgiveness, letting go of bitterness. Maybe it's getting rid of a sinful habit that stands between you and experiencing the blessing of the presence of the Lord. Well, I'll get after it, just not today. God's saying, man, consider your ways. Make a change. Do me a favor, just bow your heads. A couple questions. Have we really fallen so far that we believe that other things can satisfy us? Have we believed the lies of our culture to the extent that we no longer believe that God is the source of lasting pleasure? Have we really gotten to the point where God's calling us to rebuild his temple, but we're too busy building our own? Let me just read some of Psalm 16 as you reflect. Psalm 16, David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Do we believe that? He goes on and says, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. 
But for me, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Get this, and my flesh also dwells secure. He goes on and he says this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, I pray that we would just not read those words, that we would just not maybe know that passage of Scripture. I pray that we would live it. Give us the strength to respond to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.